Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 26th. I'm your reader, Dagna. Today's mini editorial uh, is written by the Journal Editorial Board, and they write, News outlets always want an edge over their competition, but Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy serving up surveillance footage to Tucker Carlson seems like a game of unfair play. He should have made it available to all media. And again, this was written by the Journal Editorial Board. Our top story today on the front page is headlined, Sioux City Legislators Take Questions About Eminent Domain, Teen Labor, and Books at the League of Women Folders Forum. And this article was written by Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Saturday morning, Sioux City Representatives Bob Henderson and J.D. Scholten had the opportunity to field a litany of questions from residents during a forum at the Sioux City Public Museum sponsored by the local chapter of the League of Women Voters. For 90 minutes, the first-term legislators responded to queries about eminent domain, child labor laws, book bans, young people leaving the state, solar energy, minimum wage, nursing home regulations, reorganizing state government, the Department of Revenue, and finding common cause. To open, both Henderson, a Republican, and Scholten, a Democrat, talked about what they've learned after working in Des Moines for more than a month. Henderson said, At my age, it's really nice to be called a freshman. The most important thing I've had to learn is protocol. Scholten, who ran for Congress in 2018 and 2020, said, Being a freshman, there's a lot of cards stacked against me, and being in the minority, it's a double whammy. He then noted that we get to talk and become friends with people who may not always agree with us on every issue. As Scholten and Henderson were both asked questions by the audience of more than 30 people, some of those differences became clearer. On the issue of eminent domain potentially being used for proposed carbon capture pipeline projects in Iowa, Henderson began by talking about the pseudoscience of carbon neutrality and how the state's ethanol producers have to appease other markets. Europe is just as woke as California, if not even more, Henderson said. He later mentioned one current proposal in the state legislature would require pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their proposed road through voluntary easements before being granted eminent domain authority. When Scholten spoke on the matter, he highlighted how the issue doesn't neatly cleave along party lines, and then took the companies behind the pipeline proposals to task for exaggerating the need for such work. One of the bigger people against it has been Steve King. He's very much against the pipeline, Scholten said. And to talk about the ethanol industry, the one thing I get frustrated with is they're talking about this as their only livelihood. Karen Heidman, a member of the Siouxland Progressive Women Group, used her turn at the mic to speak on Senate File 167, which would make changes to child labor laws in Iowa. If passed and signed by Governor Kim Reynolds, the bill would allow 14-year-olds to work in freezers and meat coolers, 15-year-olds would be able to load and unload groceries from trucks, 16- and 17-year-olds could serve drinks at bars and restaurants. Henderson said he agreed with Heidman 
about having concerns about child safety and that such concerns would need to be balanced with worries over employment in Iowa. A recent report from the U.S. Department of Labor found the Wisconsin-based Packers Sanitation Services to have employed at least 102 children from 13 to 17 years of age in hazardous occupations and had them working overnight shifts at 13 meat processing facilities in eight states, including Nebraska and Minnesota. According to the report, children were working with hazardous chemicals and cleaning meat processing equipment, including back saws, brisket saws, and head splitters. Shulton said the plan is a way for big business to get out of paying higher wages. Why pay someone $30 an hour when they can put in a high school kid who doesn't know any better, he asked. Asked about raising the state minimum wage up from $7.25 an hour, as Nebraska and South Dakota have done, Shulton said Iowa should raise wages to compete with its neighbors rather than cut taxes to keep up. As costs go up, wages should go up as well. $7.25 is just absolutely ridiculous, he said. Henderson differed. Changing minimum wage is as much symbolic as anything, Henderson said. He then told the crowd he'd spent a lot of time researching the issue and found that there were less people working on minimum wage and trying to support a family than might be expected. I'm all in favor of trying to help those 3,000 people, but I'm unwilling to do something that's going to put startup businesses or struggling businesses into a position where they can no longer afford their employees. In January of this year, a piece from the Iowa Capital Dispatch pointed to a state newsroom analysis which found, of the 20 states that have failed to raise the minimum wage above the federal $7.25 an hour standard, 16 have more than 12% of their children living in poverty. Heidman's husband, Marvin, was later able to ask the two lawmakers about restrictions and parental permission requirements on school books considered to be obscene by community members. Henderson, who taught math for decades, said there is talk about making sure the materials we're giving to students in the state of Iowa are appropriate for them, he, and that there's no talk about banning book banning in the state of Iowa. Republican legislators have held hearings about the process public school officials use to review books. In the Waukee School District, the book Gender Queer, which is a memoir about gender identity and sexuality, was removed from the library after complaints by parents. A 10-person committee then recommended keeping the book in the high school library. In Sioux City, public librarians say district standards meet or exceed some of the standards being proposed in the state capitol. Shulton said the proposals are examples of punching down politics. A number of the books being raised in the current discussions about restrictions are by LB, LGBTQ authors and writers of color. It's disgusting, Shulton said. It doesn't do any good. The forum was the first held by the League of Women Voters since at least October 2022 to feature members of both parties. Henderson was unable to attend the October event because of a scheduling conflict, and no other Republican candidates for the legislature went either. While Henderson and Shulton were able to attend the Saturday forum, fellow Siouxland legislators Kevin Alonce, Jacob Bosman, and Rocky DeWitt did not make it. Initially, the League of Women Voters of Sioux City was set to have its first 2023 legislative forum in January, but that had to be scrapped due to a snowstorm. 
I was pleased that we had two people show up, Dagna Simmons, the chapter president said. I thought they talked intelligently. I was pleased with the number of people from the audience who asked questions. They covered a wide range of topics. Shulton said events such as the League of Women Voters Forum represent what democracy is all about. Henderson was appreciative too, but joked about what happens after doing a two-hour event following a week at the legislature. I need, do need a whole day's worth of recovery when I come back, he said. Our next headline, Firms Report Informs Reynolds Overhaul Plan. Selling off some state-owned land should be fairly easy, but reducing the state government office footprint in Des Moines or standardizing community-based corrections programs under the state umbrella could prove more difficult. Those are among the assessments in a 68-page report by a Virginia-based consulting firm hired by Governor Kim Reynolds and paid nearly $1 million to analyze and make recommendations for the governor's proposal to realign and streamline state government. The consultant, Guidehouse, recommended reducing the number of state departments with directors who report directly to the governor from 37 to 16. The firm's report says that streamlining plus other recommended changes and moves could save Iowa State government nearly $215 million over four years. The Guidehouse report was the basis for Reynolds' sweeping legislative proposal to realign state government, a massive bill that is nearly 1,600 pages. The current structure of executive branch under the control of the governor presents a rich opportunity to realign and streamline the organization to better serve the people of Iowa and continue excellent stewardship of taxpayer dollars, the Guidehouse report says. A realigned state government will enable the governor to t continue to prioritize a government that is efficient and effective, responsive and accountable, citizen-focused, built on leading practices and data-driven decision-making, ensuring Iowa's economic prosperity. Guidehouse was paid $994,000 by the state, which selected the firm under a competitively bid master agreement between the state of New York and Guidehouse, according to the governor's office. To fund the project, the governor's office used federal pandemic relief funding from the America, American Rescue Plan Act, which Reynolds publicly opposed when it was approved by Congress and President Joe Biden in 2021. Guidehouse has not previously been contracted by Iowa State Government, but the firm says on its website that it has served 45 state governments in customer and citizen engagement, cybersecurity, program management, grant management, sustainability, and workforce planning. On its website, the firm says it offers federal and state governments a unique combination of public sector analysis and practical experience, and its experts' insights help government officials simplify complex procurement processes and produce efficient, optimal outcomes. Guidehouse has been on the Bloomberg government's list of top federal contractors in consecutive years, ranked 64th in the most recent Bloomberg report, with more than $1.2 billion in contracts for the year. Guidehouse in 2021 came under scrutiny for its role in operating New York's $2.4 billion rental assistance program for which it was awarded a $115 million no-bid contract by former Governor Andrew Cuomo. New York's program was plagued by delays and glitches early on, then ran out of funds, sparking a lawsuit from groups that advocate for tenants. In 2022, the Washington Post reported that the chief executive officer of Guidehouse told its employees that the company made a 38% margin on his contract with New York. 
The company in a statement said the CEO misspoke, saying the figure represented pre-expenses calculations and that the company's profit margin was more in line with its historic averages of 13 to 16 percent. Guidehouse will not operate any government functions as part of its contract with Iowa. Its role in Reynolds' government organization plan is purely for consulting and making recommendations, the governor's office said. The contract called for Guidehouse to assist in development and implementation of a more efficient organizational structure for the delivery of state government programs and services under the direction of the governor and to identify and recommend operational efficiencies and cost savings, according to the task order with the state. The contract with Guidance ended December 19, 2022, according to the task order. Reynolds announced her proposal during her Condition of the State Address January 10th, and the legislation was introduced February 1st. Detractors of the proposal, including Democratic state lawmakers, have criticized the process, saying Guidehouse consulted only with top-level state officials, not with those who run programs at the community level or who lead state boards and commissions. During its process, Guidehouse worked with a variety of executive branch staff to gather and collect information for the report, including agencies agency heads, senior staff, and other technical and program experts within departments, a spokesman for the governor's office told, said the, told the Gazette. In its report, Guidehouse projects with what degree of ease each broad recommendation may be achieved. Guidehouse projects selling state-owned lands near prisons and recovering $3 million in Medicaid prescription drug rebates from the federal government will be very easy. Realigning state workers, creating a more uniform technology system across state government, and securing more federal Medicaid funding will be moderately easy. Reducing the executive branch state office footprint in Des Moines and standardizing community-based correction programs as they are shifted to the state corrections department will have a low level of ease. In other words, they'll likely will prove difficult. While the report does not make it a formal recommendation for the initial state government reorganization, it suggests that in the future the state should consider the privatization of some state entities as a cost-saving measure. It lists as potential candidates for private Iowa PBS, the Iowa Communications Network, the State Historical Museum, and the Volunteer Iowa Program. Twin bills carrying Reynolds' proposal, Senate Study Bill 1123 and House Study Bill 126, have been advancing through the legislative process on the support of Reynolds' fellow Republicans. In the Senate, the bill has cleared the committee phase of the legislative process and is eligible for consideration and debate by the full Iowa Senate. Sheriff's Office Releases Details on Shooting, Sergeant Bluff. The Woodbury County Sheriff's Office is currently investigating a Friday night shooting in rural Sergeant Bluff that left one person dead and another in critical condition. According to a press release from Sheriff Chad Sheehan, officers received a call of shots fired at a home along Buchanan Avenue. Deputies arrived on scene and observed an injured person on the floor of the residence. Deputies immediately entered the residence and rescued an 11-year-old boy from inside, the sheriff's office said. Per the department, deputies found a male and female victim, both suffering from gunshot wounds, in the process of removing the 11-year-old. The original 
person observed was suffering from what appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The male suspect with the self-inflicted gunshot wound was transported to an Omaha hospital in critical condition, the office said. The female suffering from gunshot wounds was taken to Mercy One in Sioux City while the male died at the scene. As of now, the sheriff's office has said investigators are not looking for any other suspects. A press conference about the incident is set at for 3.30 p.m. Sunday at the Law Enforcement Center at 407 7th Street in Sioux City. Police probe fatal stabbing. Sioux City Police say they are investigating a fatal stabbing that happened on 11th Street Friday night. According to a release from the Sioux City Police Department, officers and medical personnel were dispatched to 414 11th Street at 9.48 p.m. for a stabbing. Once they got there, officers found an adult male suffering from multiple stab wounds. The victim was immediately treated and transported to Mercy One, where he later succumbed to the injuries, the release said. Investigators are considering the incident a homicide and the investigation is ongoing. The name of the victim was not released in the special report. The Journal changes its front office hours. Beginning March 1st, the Sioux City Journal's front office will be open from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Wednesday through Friday. If you need to contact personnel on Monday or Tuesday, please consult the directory at SiouxCityJournal.com. You will be able to find phone numbers and email addresses online. Most businesses can can also be conducted by calling 712-293-4327 between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. You will be directed to the appropriate department. If you need to contact circulation, please call 712-293-4302. High schoolers challenge Nebraska Senator's plan to study renewable energy. The economic impacts on Nebraska from a nationwide shift to renewable energy should be studied, Senator Bruce Bostelman told a panel of lawmakers on Friday. Bostelman told the legislature's executive board he wanted an independent consultant to look at the short and long-term costs of replacing coal, natural gas, and other plants with resources like wind and solar. His bill, LB 566, would appropriate $30,000 to examine the trends and potential economic impact of growing reliance on renewable energy sources in Nebraska. It would also look at the economic benefits of maintaining coal, natural gas, and nuclear plants, as well as whether or not the current shift toward more renewable resources threatens the ability of power suppliers in the state to maintain existing baseload generation. Bostelman told the executive board, as energy policy around the nation is shifting to a more diverse set of generation sources, it is prudent for the Natural Resources Committee to examine the potential effects of those policies. The shift to more renewable resources, which the Brainerd Senator referred to as intermittent generation facilities, could impact the lives of thousands of Nebraskans, he added, and could also affect the Cornhusker state's ability to ensure electricity if they're when Nebraska, the ensure electricity is there when Nebraskans need it. But a trio of Omaha high school students, all part of Students for Sustainability, a chapter of Fridays for Future, part of a global movement started by environmental activist Greta Thunberg, told senators they thought the scope of the study was far too narrow and that the result was predetermined based on the language of the bill. Mia Perales, a student from Omaha South High School, said the proposed study appears poised to ignore previous reports that show the cost of generating electricity from renewable resources like solar and wind has dropped 80% in the last decade. 
She said Nebraska has already fallen behind states like Iowa, which have become champions of renewable energy. Perales said a lot of people in Nebraska, politicians specifically, want to know why young Nebraskans are leaving. I can tell you it's not because of the prices of property taxes are raising. It is because our voices aren't being heard and we aren't being taken seriously. Omaha Central student Hunter Oakley told the lawmakers the language in LB 566 showed a blatant bias. The study would examine the negative impacts of renewable energy without doing the same for coal and gas, he said. And Chloe Johnson, also a student at Omaha Central, said days like Friday in Nebraska where it was cold but also sunny and breezy would be ideal for solar and wind generation. Johnson said, well, it makes it pretty miserable to be outside right now. It is a huge asset to our economy that is going underutilizing. Adding, the bill would put Nebraska further behind its neighboring states in renewable energy generation than it already is. There is a clear purpose to how this bill was written, she said. It is only looking at the negatives of renewables and the positives of fossil fuels because the person who wrote this bill knew that if it were a direct comparison, renewables would win economically and morally. Following the testifiers, Bostelman said the study was intended to take a snapshot of Nebraska's current power generation and look at potential costs and risks associated with current trends. Answering a question from Omaha Senator Tony Vargas, Bostelman said he was amenable to expanding the scope of the study to include other factors. The executive board did not take any action on Bostelman's board on, bill on Friday. State error leads to wrong tax returns for hundreds of Iowans. Hundreds of Iowans did not get their correct federal tax refund due to a clerical error by the State Revenue Department, the department confirmed Friday, and state money will be used to fix the mistake. A spokesman for the Iowa Department of Revenue said the department in January sent a file to the IRS that contained incorrect data for some Iowa taxpayers. Once the error was discovered, a corrected file was sent to the IRS, but in the meantime, as a result of the error, roughly 300 Iowans who had filed their 2022 federal tax returns did not receive the correct federal refund this year, the spokesman said. The State Revenue Department has begun refunding the correct amount to those taxpayers using state funds and confirming errors and working with affected taxpayers to resolve the issue, the spokesman said. We applaud, apologize for these errors and are working diligently to make it right as quickly as we can, said Department Spokesman John Fuller. Fuller did not immediately have the total dollar amount of state funds needed to address the error. WOI-TV in Des Moines first reported the error on Thursday. Last fall, the Iowa Department of Revenue failed to notice a legislative oversight to amend state law to account for property tax changes signed into law in 2013 and 2021. As a result, the department issued an erroneous calculation which local governments used to set their property tax rates. If left unfixed, that would have left residential property owners on the hook for about $130 million more in taxes than they should have under the law's original intent. Governor Kim Reynolds and the state lawmakers earlier this month approved a fix, which also creates a shortfall in expected revenue for cities, counties, school boards, and other local taxing entities, which are in the throes of finalizing their fiscal 2024 budgets. We'll now move to the opinion page and begin with the uh, journal editorial uh, opinion, and the headline is, Be Thankful for Blizzards That Weren't. In my day, we had blizzards that covered the front door, and they didn't cancel school for a little snow. 
Sound familiar? Whenever there's a threat of winter weather, two familiar rants emerge. We had it worse, and those weathermen are never right. When snow blanketed much of the Midwest last week, Siouxlanders prepped for the worst. But we're surprised when Sioux City didn't get a lot of snow. Still, it's better to be prepared and not sorry. Blaming weather forecasters for something as ever-shifting as a winter storm is wrong. They're there to prepare you for what could happen. They don't control weather patterns and will freely admit when they don't get it right. So, don't harass or badmouth them. Just be glad they reminded you to get home and stay home when the weather had the likelihood of turning. The second point is a matter of perspective. In parts of Siouxland, last week's storm was bad and those mountains of snow were noticeable. But in Sioux City, it barely grazed our radar. Good for us. We've seen enough winters to know that this isn't always the case. We've had snowstorms that required tunneling out of the snowbanks just to leave home. We've had one so severe you had to exit a second floor window just to get out. If you look back at photos from the past, you will see we accumulated some pretty impressive snowfalls. The fear was flooding in the spring. If you want blizzards to remember, note these from our archives. December 27, 1982. Monona County was without power for the better part of two days. Traffic was halted throughout the region. Emergency personnel took doctors to hospitals and medication to diabetics. Nine inches of snow fell, but it was weeks before traffic got back to normal. The Siouxland Veterans Bridge was closed due to drifting. January 10, 1975. Hundreds were stranded. The blizzard was so bad, nurses couldn't leave their hospitals and stayed on to cover for those who could not make it to work. Elsewhere, motels were so full, employees from other businesses slept on the floor because they couldn't make it home. A choir from the University of North Dakota stayed in a bus until help could arrive to take its members to a motel. When they got there, the singers entertained the folks who similarly were stuck. Livestock died in significant numbers. Cars were abandoned on the interstate. Siouxland didn't recover for weeks. The Weather Bureau called it the Midwest's worst storm in 40 years. November 11, 1940. Called the Armistice Day blizzard, the storm blew into Siouxland early in the morning. Cut communication, halted trains, and slowed streetcars. School was canceled for three days in Sioux City. Twelve inches of snow swirled around homes, streets, and highways. Gusts were up to 60 miles per hour and resulted in more than 100 deaths across the Midwest. A turkey grower near Storm Lake lost 25,000 birds. Another farmer reported 50 head of sheep were killed. January 12, 1888, the blizzard hit with a vengeance. The journal reported visibility was impossible. Frost was an inch thick and farmers and children died. A country school became a refuge for children who went there. The only thing that saved us was that we had plenty of wood, one of the survivors said. Drifts were 20 to 30 feet deep. Temperature dropped some 60 degrees in less than 24 hours. And now we have one letter to the editor which was written by Donald C. Parsons of Sioux City and Donald writes, the Journal Editorial Board printed an editorial last Sunday under the headline, Iowa Schools Aren't So Bad After All. Unfortunately, as the father of a Davenport, Iowa high school teacher, I must strongly disagree. Let me list behaviors that are occurring in her school in Dan Davenport. One, 
They no longer waste time disciplining students for language that was once considered obscene and desecrating to our Lord and His Son. Two, since marijuana is legal in Illinois, the students frequently come to school stoned or get stoned while at school. Three, students, are you a student if you aren't in school to learn? Wander the halls and never attend their classes. Four, fighting and bullying are very prevalent among the girls. I repeat, girls. The Journal Editorial Board applauds the youth who participate in choir, band, sports, STEM competitions, and recommends we go state finals in sports or show choir events where we will applaud our public schools. No, go to a high school at the end of the day and go into the men's bathroom. This will best illustrate the environment where our students are expected to get an education. The last time I was in the men's bathroom at North, it was disgusting. Don't base the school on the achievements of the most ambitious students, but on the environment the average student has to navigate and get not get lost in the physical filth, verbal filth, and behavior filth. Again, this letter was written by Donald C. Parsons of Sioux City. You, <clears throat> you are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 26th on IRIS. The Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind will now go to today's obituaries. William Eric Speckhart, Altoona, Wisconsin, formerly of Sioux City, passed away in his sleep on Sunday, February 11th. A private family service will be held in the summer at the Northern Wisconsin Veterans Cemetery. Bill was born on November 23, 1948 in Sioux City. After graduating from Central High School, he was drafted into the USAF on July 25, 1968 and served two tours in Vietnam. He was honorably discharged with the rank of sergeant on June 24, 1972. He attended Witt uh, Community College, obtaining a degree in auto mechanics. He repaired heavy equipment for over 40 years. He enjoyed camping, boating, and fishing. He was married to Judith Kaler from May of 1973 until May of 1990. <clears throat> John Bridgeford, Jr. of Merrill, Iowa, 50, died Wednesday, February 22nd. A celebration of life will be February 26th, which is today, at 4 p.m. at Wex Wrinkle Funeral Home in Lamars. Visitation will also be today, February 26th, from 1 p.m. until service time at the funeral home. Lorraine E. Washburn Lawton, 93, died Wednesday, February 8th. Services will be February 27th at 10.30 a.m. at Bethel Lutheran Church. Burial will be at a later date in the Banner Township Cemetery. Visitation will be February 26th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the church. Arrangements with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Blondina May Johns, 89, of Oskaloosa and formerly of Keokuk and Sioux City, died Wednesday, February 22nd at the MHP Serenity Hospice House in Oskaloosa. Visitation will begin at 1 p.m. on Tuesday in the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel at 3220 Stone Park Boulevard in Sioux City. The family will be present from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday to greet friends and relatives. A Christian visual service will be held at 7 p.m. on Tuesday at the funeral home. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at the All Saints Catholic Church in Keokuk, 
with Reverend David Brownfield officiating. The burial will be in the Oakland Cemetery in Keokuk. The Bates Funeral Chapel in Oskaloosa is in charge of the arrangements. Bladina was born July 16, 1933 in Decatur, Nebraska, the daughter of Earl and Liberty Halstead Bauman. Being the oldest of 14 children, her nurturing spirit developed quickly as she cared for her younger siblings. She also helped her mother with laundry and cleaning for various families in Decatur. She graduated from Decatur High School with the class of 1950. Following graduation, she worked in the factory at Zenith and later as a waitress in the cafe at the Truck Haven in Sioux City. In addition to working as a waitress, she provided laundry service for the dog racing track in Sioux City. On June 28, 1953, she was united in marriage to Raymond Joseph Johns at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Sioux City. To this union, six children were born, Raymond, Paul, Linda, Byron, Russell, Becky, and Nancy. In addition to caring for her children at home, Dana worked outside the home at Interbake Foods, Schaefer Penn, as a nanny for a family in Keokuk, in the cafeteria of the hospital, and at last at Walmart in Keokuk. She retired from Walmart in 2001. On January 8, 2013, Raymond died after 59 years of marriage. In 2021, Dina moved to Oskaloosa to be closer to her grandchildren. Bladina was a member of the All Saints Catholic Church in Keokuk and had been a member of the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Sioux City. She donated selflessly of her time, resources, and baking talents to many church functions. She volunteered for many years in the nurse's office at the Keokuk Community Schools. She enjoyed fishing, crocheting, reading, putting puzzles together, coloring, and trips to the casino. She was always up for a game of bingo. She was always very proud of her big garden and made the most of her produce by canning a surplus to get the family through the winter. She was a devoted wife, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, sister, and friend. Now, Ashley McCoy, 26, of Sioux City, passed away Saturday, February 11th in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Ashley, the daughter of Rhonda Collins and Ryan Myers, and Paul McCoy was born March 27, 1996 in Colorado Springs. She was raised in Sergeant Bluff and Sioux City and graduated from North High in 2014. How can a life just begun be encompassed in mere words? But Ashley truly did live. She lived fearlessly moving around the country and finding adventure wherever she landed, in a hammock in the Black Hills or on the beach in Virginia and everywhere in between. She learned she was a gift she was an artist, a gamer, a master of trivia, could work any job, and was a trained welder and electrician. But most importantly she discovered herself. When she was born we called her male, son, brother. She eventually found the words to tell us that she was female, daughter, sister. And when she did, she was truly her most beautiful, fulfilled, happiest self. She loved. Ashley's sweet soul was apparent from the moment you met her. There was never an animal that went unadored in her presence. She would do anything for anyone and never ask for anything in return. She was shy and quiet, but had a sense of humor and a laugh that could fill any room. She never wanted anyone to feel sad or worried. So when someone reminds you to hold your loved ones closer, do it. When you have a chance to do a kindness for a stranger, do it. Ashley would have, and her love will live on through all of us. In lieu of flowers and memorials may be directed to Ashley's family, care of Rhonda Myers, 
Post Office Box 57, Lakefield, Minnesota, 56150. Robert Bob Peters, 77, of Spirit Lake, passed away on Saturday, February 25th, at his home, surrounded by his family. Service for Bob will be held at 4 p.m. on Thursday at the Robinson Funeral Home in Spirit Lake. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service on Thursday at the funeral home. Arrangements are under the direction of the Robinson Funeral Home in Spirit Lake. Bob was born January 2, 1946 in Sibley, Iowa to Johnny and Jeanette Peters. The family moved to Paulina when Bob graduated from high school when he was 16 years old. By age 19, Bob had graduated from Westmark College with a degree in social work and was employed by the Iowa Department of Human Services. This began a 37-year career with the Iowa Department of Human Services. By the time he retired, Bob was a regional administrator supervising staff and services for one-fifth of the state of Iowa. In 2001, Bob married Jean Pigdahauer. Together they fished the lakes of Iowa. Bob loved to tell stories about how Jean could outfish him even though she couldn't bait a hook. In retirement, Bob dabbled with the jobs as Disaster Relief Administrator with FEMA, City Administrator for the City of Dakota City, and Consultant to the State of Michigan Department of Human Resources. Bob fiercely loved his family, friends, work, and fishing. Gerald H. Stolze, South Sioux City, 82, died Friday February 24th. Arrangements are pending with the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Jill Pritchard, formerly of Sioux City, 61, died Thursday, February 23rd. Arrangements are pending with the Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Marie Ann McClure of Kingsley passed away on Friday, February 24th after a brief illness. She was 81. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday at Road Funeral Home in Kingsley, with the Scripture Wake held at 7 p.m. A rosary will be recited at 4.30 p.m. prior to the visitation. <clears throat> Services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday at St. Michael's Church in Kingsley. There will be a luncheon to follow services back at the Road Funeral Home. Marie was born on September 22, 1941, to the late Leonard and Mary Gauguin in Somerville, Massachusetts. Marie was one of seven children. In 1958, Marie met Jack McClure in Somerville. Marie and Jack were together for 65 years and married for 63 years. They went on to have six children. The first five years of their marriage were spent in Massachusetts, then moving back to Sioux City, where Jack was from. They later moved to Kingsley, where they have resided for the past 17 years. Coming from Boston, all these years later, she never fully lost her accent. She could not speak without someone asking where she was from. So, she was nicknamed Boston Lady. The two most important things in Marie's life were her family and her faith. She lived her life as a devoted Catholic. Throughout her life, her faith never wavered. Marie had several different jobs over the years, but her favorite job was working as cashier at St. Luke's in the cafeteria. After that job, she went to work at Walmart and worked her way up to being a department uh, manager. After leaving Walmart, she officially retired, but wanted to continue to helping others, so she went to work at the Kingsley Pearson School Cafeteria. 
Living in Kingsley, Marie was a strong supporter of the Kingsley Panthers, participated in the Women's Bible Study Group, was part of the VFW Women's Auxiliary Group, and was a Eucharist minister. She enjoyed being able to give communion and having the opportunity to visit with other church members. Marie enjoyed spending time in the summer camping and fishing. She loved to take walks and would take her dog Missy with her. She enjoyed playing games like bingo and cribbage. What Marie enjoyed most was the time she got to spend with grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She loved attending events they were in. She always would have a special treat for them when she saw them. Marie had several accomplishments later in her life that were important to her. At age 37, she had gotten her driver's license, and a number of years later, she was able to go back to school and get her GED, something she was very proud of. And she worked hard to become a lifetime member of Weight Watchers. Special thanks to grandson Jason Pridey for all his help over the last few years. And that concludes today's obituaries. We'll now move to um, sports, specifically girls basketball. Six high school girls basketball teams from the journal circulation area will compete for state championships this week at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. So we're going to highlight the six teams. The first one is Bishop Helan. Their nickname is the Crusaders. They're in the Missouri River Athletic Con Conference. Their season record is 22-2. The last state tournament appearance was in 2022 where they were runner-up. They're uh, third in the Class 2A. They're, that's their seed. The first game it will be set against Cedar Rapids Xavier at 5 o'clock Tuesday. Their leading scorer is Brooklyn Stanley, and leading rebounder is Abby Lee. After starting the season 0-2, the Crusaders have won 22 straight games. One of the early losses was to Cedar Rapids Xavier, which also beat Heelan 54-40 in last year's state title game. The Crusaders drew the Saints for their first state attorney game Tuesday at Wells Fargo Arena. The Crusaders are the second highest scoring team in Class 4A, averaging 63.3 points per game, just behind leader Decora 63.4. Helan's stingy defense has limited opponents to an average of just 40.2 points per contest. Some of this year's players were on Helan's last state championship team as freshmen in 2020. The Crusaders also won state titles in 2008 and 2010. Uh, the next team is Central Lion. Their nickname is the Lions. They're in the Siouxland Conference. Their season record is 22-0. The last, last state tournament appearance was in 2022 as a runner-up. Uh, the Class 2A seed is second. And their first game will be against Panorama at 10 a.m. Wednesday. Their leading scorer is Addison Klassenbuehr, and the leading rebounder is Desta Hugendun. Uh, they are top ranked and undefeated Central Lion returns to the Class 2A state tournament a year after losing 59-52 in the finals to Dyke New Hartford 59-52. Klosterbeer, a first-team All-State selection, posted a team-high 19 points in the title game. Klosterbeer, a 5'9 guard, has again led the team in scoring with an average of 19.9 points per game. The University of South Dakota recruit exploded for a school record 38 points against West Lyon in January. Junior Desta Hugendorn 
provides a one-two punch for the Lions, averaging 15 points per game while also pulling down a team-high 8.4 rebounds per contest. The uh, next team is Remsen St. Mary's. Their nickname is the Hawks. Their conference is the War Eagle. Their season record is 23-1. This is their first uh, state tournament appearance. Uh, their Class 1A seed fourth. Their first game is going to be against West Fork at 3.15 p.m. Wednesday. Their leading scorer is Whiny Jensen, and their leading rebounder is also Jensen. After near misses in the regionals in recent seasons, the Hawks have qualified for the girls' state basketball tournament for the first time in school history. A trio of junior guards led the, scoring, the team in scoring, Whitney Jensen, Maya Bunkers, and Carmody Bunkers. And Jensen also are... Bunkers and Jensen are also the, the top assist play leaders with 4 and 3.5 per game respectively. Averaging 56.3 points per game, Remsen St. Mary's is the 15th highest scoring team in Class 1A. West Fork, their first opponent at state, is 9th. Hawkeyes only loss, I'm not Hawkeyes, the Hawks only loss of the season was to Class 3A state ranked Unity Christian in early January. <clears throat> then the next team is Sioux Center. Their nickname is the Warriors. Their conference is Siouxland. Their, their season record is 18-5, and their last state of tournament appearance was in 2018. Their current Class 3A seed is 6th. The first game will be against West Marshall at 10 a.m. Tuesday. Their leading scorer is Willow Bleeker, and their leading rebounder is also Willow Bleeker. Four of Sioux Center's five losses this year were to Class 2A state qualifiers Central Lion and Sibley O'Shaden. The Warriors lost twice each to their Siouxland Conference rivals. The other loss was to Conference foe West Lion. Bleeker leads Sioux Center in points, rebounds, and assists, averaging 12.2, 4.7, and 3.3 respectively. Sophomore Marco Schuitman is second in scoring, averaging 8.6 points. Schuitman has connected on 53.4% of her shots. Sioux Center's stif stifling defense has limited opponents to an average of 45.4 points per game. Uh, the next team is Sibley O'Shaden. Their nickname is the Generals. They're in the Siouxland Conference. Their season record is 21-3. Their last state appearance was way back in 1997. Uh, their Class 3A seed is fourth. Their first game at state will be against Iowa City Regina, Regina Catholic at 8.30 p.m. Tuesday. Their leading, leading scorer and the leading rebounder is Madison Brower. Brower, a returning Class 2A first-team All-State selection, has averaged a double-double this season with 18.4 points and 10.9 rebounds per contest. The 6'1 senior is shooting 57.6 from the field and 78.6 from the free-throw line. A state track champion and a four-year state cross-country qualifier, Brower has committed to run for the University of South Dakota next year. Senior Marissa Ackerman is, is Sibley O'Shaden's second leading scorer and rebounder with averages of 13.4 and 7.6 generally, respectively. This is the general's first state uh, tournament appearance in 26 years since making three straight trips from 1995 to 1997. And then our last team, 
to be featured uh, is Nuo Fonda. Uh, their nickname is the Mustangs. Their conference is Twin Lakes. Their season record is 22-2. to Last date of tournament appearance is 2022. Their leading scorer is Mary Walker, and their leading rebounder is Kira Jungers. Their Class 1A seed is second. And their first game at state will be against Woodbine at 5 p.m. Wednesday. The Mustangs enter the tournament as the state's second highest scoring team, averaging 73.9 points per game, behind only the number one seed in Class 1A, Algona Bishop Garrigan. Three Newell Fonda girls average in double figures. Senior Mary Walker with 15.3 average, junior Kira Jungers 12.3, and junior McKenna Seavers 11. Newell Fonda's only two losses this season came against undefeated Esterville Lincoln Central, the top seed in the Class 3A tournament. This is the Mustangs' 18th state tournament appearance, including the last five. Newell Fonda has won four state crowns in 2015 and a three-peat from 2019 to 2021. The Mustangs entered the 2022 tourney as a top seed, looking for a fourth straight title, but were upset in the semifinals by MMCRU 66-62. Now we'll uh, move to hockey. Musketeers lose at Kearney. A Tri-City goal scored at the buzzer in the first period ended up being the difference as the Storm defeated the Sioux City Musketeers 4-3 Friday night. The first period saw a flurry of goals. The Storm kicked off the scoring with the 10th of the season for August Falloon. The Muskies answered three and a half minutes later at the 10-16 mark of the period. Sam Decutt tallied his eighth goal of the year and tied the game at one. Tri-City answered a couple of minutes later at 12.44 with a Damon Gardner power play goal, converting on a five-minute major and took a 2-1 lead. Tri-City converted at the end of the first. With only one second remaining, Trevor Connolly tallied his 12th of the season, giving Tri-City a 3-1 lead. The Musketeers found more success in the second. Ben Poitras scored his 12th of the season after a Ty Hansen takeaway at 9.31 in the second. The Storm looked to one of their top scorers, Jake Richard, for his 21st of the season at 11.24 in the period, widening the gap back to two goals. The Musketeers pulled back to within one late in the period, converting on the power play of which they were 1-4. Hodson deflected a rebound fired on net from Descartes for his 12th of the year at 19.18 and took a 4-3 deficit into the third. Neither team lit the lamp in the third period. Tri-City outshot the Musketeers in all three periods en route to a 42-28 advantage throughout the game. Axel Manguel was handed the loss for the Muskies, stopping 38 of 42 shots. Cameron Copry collected the win, making 25 saves on 28 attempts. The Musketeers currently sit in fifth place and are now four points back of the storm for fourth in the Western Conference. Sioux City and Tri-City continue the weekend series on Saturday in Kearney. Celebrating the area's best of the best, the 2023 Siouxland's Choice Awards are here. 
A record-breaking 60,000 people, places, and businesses were nominated, and more than 185,000 votes were cast this year for Siouxland's Best of the Best. Each year, readers of the Sioux City Journal and The Weekender are asked for their opinions on who is the best among scores of categories. Being very opinionated people by nature, our readers came through like troopers. Launched by The Weekender more than 20 years ago with only a handful of categories, the Siouxland's Choice Awards has expanded far beyond its original purview of the best in bars, foods, and nightlife. Today, we are also have everything from the best service to the best shopping to the best health care categories in the area. Want to know Siouxland's Choice for Best Barber for yourself or the best dog groomer for your best friend? Well, we got you covered. The 2023 Siouxland Choice Awards are a testament to the quality exemplified by established business after years and years of service. Yet, you'll also find plenty of up-and-coming hidden gems moving up in the ranks, which is why we have changed the way businesses are listed. This year, the top vote-getters were listed in first place, while the others were called favorites. Whether they represent the tried and true or the new and trendy, Siouxland's Choice Awards recipients make us proud. The next time you see a Siouxland's Choice Awards decal or sign in a business, feel confident you're in the hands of professionals whose reputation precedes them. And we'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, when I visit my three grandchildren on Fridays, my daughter-in-law never offers me any refreshment, not even a glass of water or a cup of tea. She will eat in front of me and not offer me anything. I was taught that this is rude. Should I bring my own refreshment? If I did, I would feel as though I would need to feed the whole family. I already travel quite far to get to her house, 45 minutes each way, and I bring snacks for the grandchildren. I visit them because it's easier for my daughter-in-law to have me over than to haul the one, three, and six-year-olds out to my house. I would love to be invited to stay for dinner, but it has never happens ahead of time. If I come at 2 p.m., then around 5 p.m., I may be invited, but I feel it is out of obligation, so I don't stay. What should I do? Signed, Too Polite in Pennsylvania. And Abby responds, You were raised in a home where you were taught good manners. Apparently, the woman your son married was not. No hostess with an ounce of class would eat in front of a guest without offering them anything. The haphazard way you are included at dinner makes me wonder if your daughter-in-law dislikes you and only tolerates your presence, because it certainly isn't calculated to make you feel welcome. Talk this over with your son. If your visits are regarded as an imposition, perhaps you should take the grants for an outing rather than watch their mother eat. Dear Abby, my son has a best friend, Earl. He has hung out with since they were 14. Earl considers me his second mother because his real mother deserted him after he graduated from high school. He has never married or had kids. I'm 76 and Earl is 55. He does small jobs for me off and on, like changing the light bulbs in my kitchen, fixing a light switch, replacing my windshield wipers, things like that. He calls me off and on and we email a lot. We both love movies and enjoy discussing them and the actors. When he calls, I know I sometimes become long-winded. I'm sure Earl gets tired of me going on and on about my stuff, but instead of telling me he needs to go, he quietly hangs up on me. I think it's extremely rude. I wish he would just tell me he has to go. I would not be upset about that. Earl never mentions it later, and we just go on as usual. I could tell him I'm never speaking to him again if he does it again, but I need him to help with those small tasks, so I don't want to make him mad. Must I remain silent about it? What should I do? 
signed, left hanging in California. And Abby responds, Tell Earl that when he hangs up on you, it is extremely hurtful. Explain that you know you are sometimes long-winded, and if he needs to end the conversation, there are kinder ways of doing it. Tell him that if he lets you know he needs to go, it will not hurt your feelings, and this is what you would prefer. Then cross your fingers that this second son gets the message. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for February um, 26th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.